Okay, disclaimer tonight. I um, I usually eat really healthy. Tonight my dinner was taquitos. Um, I'm really tired and I'm drinking PBR. Here we go. You ready for this? All right. All right, let's just say a prayer in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, we bless you. Uh, we thank you for the goodness of our lives, even in trials, even in sufferings. Uh, Lord, that you've given us the breath of life. We ask you to open our hearts tonight, our minds to the mystery of the Eucharist. Uh, help us to see what you have given us in this great sacrament. Uh, and Lord, just bless my words. Uh, it may be you who speaks. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, before we jump into uh, where we left off last time, kind of left out last time, which was, I want to so sacraments right we talked about how sacraments all of them insert us into the cross right Christian that there's doctrines we're supposed to believe and a moral life we're supposed to live Christianity is the way and what God wants for us is not just our good behavior he wants to live inside of you right that's what he wants and if you've ever loved someone a lot, you don't just want them to do nice things and to, to behave well. If you love someone, it's almost like you want your heart to live inside of theirs. It's, it's something like that. That's what sacraments are about. Sacraments are that God didn't just die for us in the past, but he wants to live inside of you now, today. Okay. Oh, quick story though. Sacraments, one of my favorite for a lot of Catholics is that sacraments become like a vending machine. Right, you go to mass, you're like, okay, long homily, push the Eucharist button, get holy. Okay, go back to regular life. That's not the sacraments. And um, so a simple story I used to demonstrate this is in Mark chapter 5. It's the story of the hemorrhaging woman. So you might know the story, you might not, but we're not going to read it just because we have way too much to ground to cover tonight. So the gist of the story is this. Jesus is in a crowd and he's walking and Jesus is becoming famous at this point because he's healing people. With troubles. Uh, he's, you know, he's kind of a big deal. So he's walking and there's a big crowd and there's a woman, we're told, who has been hemorrhaging blood for 38 years. And it, there's a lot of detail to the story that I would love to get into, but it's just not for tonight. So anyway, she, she crawls on her hands and her knees through the crowd and she reaches out and she touches the hem of Jesus' cloak and she's healed. And Jesus turns to the 12 apostles and it's one of the best lines in the Bible. It's one of my favorites. He turns to the apostles and he says, who touched me? And to paraphrase, the apostles are like, are you out of your mind? Everyone is touching you. There's 20 people touching you right now. And they, they, what they actually say, they say, see how the crowd presses upon you, yet you say who touched it, Tons of people are touching Jesus. But the hemorrhaging woman is healed. And she, she crawls out and she, she comes to Jesus and she tells him the whole story. And here's why this relates to sacraments. What the Catholic Church believes about 
sacraments, if you go to Mass on Sunday and you receive the Eucharist, whether you believe it is the Eucharist or not, you just touch Jesus Christ. You can be a total atheist. It's about the church is like, this is objective. This is the body of Christ, and you can believe it, you cannot believe it, but that's what it is. But hundreds of people touched Jesus. One person was healed. And the reason is this, is that the sacraments, brothers and sisters, the sacraments will do you no good if you don't have faith. And so the catechism of the Catholic Church teaches that the effect of the sacraments in our lives is proportionate open we really are to God. Right? And so you'll meet a lot of Catholics who they, like, where I used to go to Mass every Sunday, but it didn't seem to have much of an effect. But when my face started changing, when I to God, it transformed me. And the way I received Eucharist changed forever. Okay, so that's one thing is that sacraments, you get the point, the sacraments are not a vending machine. Catholics do not believe that like, well, if you just go to church and if you just go to confession, push the button, you don't really have to change and everything's great. We don't believe that. You, you, there's something in you that God wants. He wants you to respond. Before we move on, questions about that? Okay. One story, and then we're going to pick up where we left off. I was trying, I asked Father Mike, I was like, tell me a story about a, a saint who's like associated with the Eucharist. And it's a joke among devout Catholics sometimes. Because sometimes you'll hear saints and they'll be like, tell me about this saint. And they're like, well, she really loved the Eucharist. Like, Duh, every saint in Catholic history has loved the Eucharist because the Eucharist is Jesus, right? It's kind of like if you're a, from a Protestant background, you're like, tell me about this amazing Christian. You're like, well, um, yeah, they, they believe that Jesus was their personal Lord and Savior. It's like, okay, anything else? Okay, anyway, here we go. So one story I just thought, I'm Paul II, one of my heroes. Did I tell this story? Just stop me if I've told it. JP2, do you guys know that I talk every single day to groups of people? Every single day. And so people are like, you told that story. I'm like, yeah, well, you know what? You don't talk to people every day, <laughs> all right? So John Paul II was famous for, he was just this hugely charismatic personality. Uh, obviously just a tremendous saint, one of the greatest saints of the 20th century. Um, but when he was Pope, he would travel. It's actually... Paul II was seen in person by more people than any human being in history. Uh, and like every country he went to, there were these World Youth Days and these big gatherings. And it was like every country, oh wow, the largest gathering in the history of Zimbabwe. That was the largest gathering in the history of Poland. You know, in every country he went to, it was like that. So he'd go on these trips and he would always get behind schedule. And it's, it's so beautiful because when you're, when you're like the, the Pope, like he's just, I don't know, people connected with him so deeply. And so he would always like make these random decisions to do something he wasn't supposed to do. Not moral, but you know, for, for the schedule. 
So the story goes, I forget which country this was, but he was visiting one of these countries. And uh, one of the things he was famous for is that whenever John Paul II came across a chapel where the Eucharist was, he would always stop and pray. And like, I actually think this might've been here. It might've been in the US. I don't know. But wherever it was, like, there'd be like major world leaders. It's like, John Paul's like walking down, you know, and he sees people and they're like, Bill Clinton's waiting for you. And he's like, I don't care. Um, but this story, what happened, he's walking down and the, his secretary went before him, a priest, this guy named Jivish. Jivish went ahead of him and he, these bishops in this country, we have to make sure that uh, we're, we're going to be way behind the schedule and we have to make sure that there is not a chapel on this route. <laughs> Priests say stuff like that all the time, right? He's like, we have to make sure there's not going to be a chapel. But there was. And they're going down this, they had this big hallway that he was going to walk down. And one of the rooms is a chapel with a Eucharist in it. And the story goes, and if you want to read about this, this is a great book I'll recommend. It's called, um, it's like St. JP2, John Paul II, uh, His Five Loves. And this is a guy, he, um, does Jason ever still, do you know? Oh, bookshelf over there. But anyway, so he, he interviewed all these, you know, people who knew John Paul really well. So in the story, what happened was Jeevish told all these bishops and people, you've got, you, we have to, this is not okay. We're going to be an hour late for our meeting with the president of the country if he finds out the Eucharist is on this floor. Oh, uh, I love this story. He's walking down the hallway. Sure enough, what they did is they just hit it. So they just, they took the sign off the door that said chapel and they just shut every single door. There were like 20 doors on this hallway. Just shut them all. And they're like, okay, great. He's never going to know. So literally they're walking down the hallway, you know, and JP2 is just walking. There's like 10 priests and bishops. He's just talking and he gets to the door where the Eucharist is and he just stops. And he turns to Jeevish, his secretary, and he just shakes his finger. <laughs> and then he went into the chapel and prayed for an hour. <laughs> right. I love that. Okay, so back tonight to the Eucharist. Brothers and sisters, as I said last time, if you get this, this is everything. If you understand this, this is the Eucharist is the reason that faithful Catholics no matter what happens, our faith is not about a pope or the bishops. It's not about our church being dynamic. It's not about the about Jesus, and it's about the Eucharist. And if you get this, you'll be Catholic and you'll never leave. In college, I came this close to leaving the Catholic Church because every person I knew at CU who loved Jesus and was not my mother or my grandmother's age, they weren't at CU, um, Every single one of them was Protestant. And the Catholic campus ministry at my time in Boulder, it got better while I was there, but when I was terrible, it was, it was the most painful thing on earth. And I was on my way out, and the only reason I am still Catholic today, in one sense at least, is because I, I couldn't leave the Eucharist. And I didn't know why. I couldn't explain it. Like I explained to you tonight, I couldn't do it. But I just, there was just something in me. I was like, I know I know the Eucharist and I can't, I can't leave that. Okay. So last time we talked about 
parallels between the Old Testament and the New. So let's do this really, really fast. So Old Testament, New Testament. So in the Old Testament, right, God's people are in slavery where? Egypt, right? What's the slavery in the New Testament? Sin, right? There's a bad guy in the Old Testament who is Pharaoh. Bad guy in the New Testament, Satan. Um, what's the next one? Um, oh, thank you. Redeemer Old Testament is Moses. Redeemer New Testament is... Okay, like four people said Jesus. All right. Come on, folks. All right. So Moses and Jesus, and then here's where we're going to go in more detail, right? How did they get out of Egypt? Okay, I, I'm different things, but yeah. So the plagues, right, is the first answer. Ten plagues. And then, oh, I wish we had, I, it would be so fun to spend like six months talking about just this. Oh, and then Red Sea. Okay, so 10 plagues. Um, we're going to come back to that. And that plagues, and let's just say Passover because that's the key. Okay. Um, <clears throat> what's, can, what corresponds to Red Sea in New Testament? Baptism, right? As St. Paul says in Romans 10. And remember, Egypt is a symbol of sin, right? And in the waters of the Red Sea, eyes in the waters, and there's new life inside, right? Romans chapter 6, verse 3, right? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? By baptism, into death, so that just as God the Father raised Christ from the dead, we too might have newness of life. Water is death in the Bible, and new life. And so in, in baptism, we are buried with Christ in the waters and we receive the promise of resurrection. Okay, uh, Red Sea. That's not even baptism. Okay, um, how long are the, are the Jews after the day after the Red Sea? They're in a wilderness, right? In a desert. How long are they there? 40 years. What corresponds to us? Generation, our lifetime. Where where were the Jews going? Yeah, the big PL. And what's our promised land? Heaven. Um, they survive on the way in the wilderness. Manna. How do we survive? our dirt journey in the desert. What's the new manna? The Eucharist. New bread for Okay, there's more. Sacram- the, the, the stops the day they enter into the promised land. The church teaches that sacraments end when we enter heaven. To be a Christian, we go through the Exodus. And the earliest Christians have sermons about this. It's amazing. And it's true today for your life. You want to be a Christian? You got to leave Egypt, right? Egypt, it doesn't mean everyone out there is evil. But they're not, it's not godly, 
right? The culture doesn't want you to live a life where you're chased, right? Where you don't pursue money and all the things that everybody, right? Live for those things. And, you've, and if you're going to worship God, you have to leave Egypt. But the manna, right? As I said last time, the manna doesn't come until you've left Egypt, right? Exodus 16, God waits until you run out of food from Egypt. And the church today teaches you cannot receive the Eucharist, right? If you're living a life of sin, right, which is Egypt, you shouldn't be partaking of the Eucharist. So a couple last things. First, remember back to our like, first class? What's the first name for Christianity? The way, right? In, ho- in Greek, it's hodas. Just wanted to impress you. Okay, the way. And guess what? This is a way. The way is it's a journey. It's a walk. Right? And the New Testament consciously knows that. It knows that it is Exodus story. That to, to be a to walk with Christ is to leave something behind, is to be going somewhere, is to be on the way. That's what it means to be a Christian. Okay, so here we go. So we're going to set the stage a little bit for the Last Supper, try to understand the Last Supper. Uh, and to set that up for a second, they just give you some different like data points almost for the New Testament. Okay, so we, I just use a test, right? If you have a Bible, we divide the Bible into two parts, right? You've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. What's the difference between the two? What's like, what, what, what makes the New Testament different from the Old? Yeah, Jesus, right? That's the answer is Jesus. There we had the beard. we had this this priest I grew up with. He used to, he was like he's the one that was perfect blend of Saint Francis of Assisi and Willy Wonka, and uh, it's true. He awesome and all of the he did sermons. This has nothing to do with anything, by the way. But what I there's Jesus. He used to in sermons. He I remember, was a teenager and he was giving. The, it, like too bored out of his mind, and Father can like totally tell, and and he walked up to me and was like, "What was the reading about?" And the kid goes, "God loves us," and we're all, like, "Oh, that's such a dumb answer." Woo! That's right. It just made me think of that. The answer is Jesus. So you should have two handouts that I gave you tonight, okay? One contains uh, four pages front and back. The other one's just front and back. So there's a lot there. Um, so if you didn't get that, hopefully that's still going around. So back to the, the Testament. Jesus is the difference the, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? So that word, what does the word Testament mean? I mean, that sounds kind of like testimony, maybe. Is that what you're thinking? I could see, yeah. 
Testament, maybe? Yes, but that's not what I'm looking for. So read my mind next, better next time, Nate. Anybody else? This is a hard one. Testament is, so to, in Greek, the, the, what it translates is covenant. So covenant in um, Greek is diatheke. Oops, I'm writing in Greek. Diatheke. Um, and so diatheke in Greek is covenant. What is, what's a covenant? Okay, good. Exchange of persons. This is the key to a covenant is vows, which are sacred promises. But a covenant is, is what creates a family, right? Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is where you make promises, you make vows, but it creates a family. Testament is the covenant on... So diatheke, when it's translated into Latin from Greek, the translation is testamentum in Latin. And that's why we call it the Old Testament, New Testament. That's where that comes from. So really what we're saying is the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And the Old Covenant, there is a family of God, right? And being the family. In the New Covenant, which was a plan from the beginning, but in Christ now, the family is for everyone. It's for the whole world. It's for every person on so the Old Testament promises over and over and over again, all over the place, that God is going to bring this new covenant. He talks about this. It's important places, I would say, are in uh, Ezekiel 36, 25, if you're a Bible guy like me, and Jeremiah 31, 31. So if you're a Bible person, those are two prophets where God promises Ezekiel. 25 in Jeremiah 31, uh, the covenant. And God actually promises part the sign of a new covenant, he says in those passages, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit within you. There's going to be a covenant. Okay. Huge deal, right? So every time people pick up, all right, open your Bibles to the Old Testament. You know, the prophet Habakkuk, right? And I just love saying that because Habakkuk is he's freaking. Um, but when they say that, right, we word all the time. So covenant, my whole point, covenant's a very big deal. St. Paul out the new covenant constantly, all over the place. St. Peter talks about the new covenant in the New Testament all over the place. All over the place. St. John. Talks about it in letters. Okay. Does anybody know how many times does Jesus talk about the new covenant? Bam. You're supposed to get it wrong. Yeah. Was that a great buildup? You knew where we were going. Jesus, think, right? The Bible is about this new covenant, and we as Christians believe in this new covenant. Jesus Christ talks about it in his life. Once. Only once. Isn't that interesting? Only time, there's only one time. Now, 
it should, it's probably obvious. When was the one time Jesus talks about a new covenant? It was at the Last Supper. We're going to get to, hopefully, God knows how, is I just want to show you first, New Testament makes a huge deal about the Last Supper. And a lot of modern people don't know why. They, we understand the cross, right? If that Jesus died for our sins on the cross, that makes sense. But why is the Last Supper such a big deal? Here's another piece of information for you. Almost never in the New Testament, almost never is attested by all four gospel writers. So the, the, the accounts of Jesus' life we call gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they, they, they tell different parts of them. There's only a couple things that all tell, tell the story about. There's only a couple of events. The baptism at the Jordan is one of them. The resurrection didn't make it. No, just kidding. Resurrection's one. Um, there might be like one other. I can't think of one other though. Probably the triumphal entry when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. All four of them talk about the And they all devote serious space to it. So what I want, what I want to show you is the start. Is like the New Testament is showing us something really important happened here. Important. But I'm convinced because we haven't taught it, the, the church has failed us in this. What I'm going to teach you and next time probably because we probably won't finish tonight is something that I did not learn when I was in college and I should have been taught this from the time I was five years old. I've never heard people teach on this. And it's the soul of everything it means to be a Catholic. Um, and I'm really, really bitter about it. I, I'm not going to write a book. I'm going to teach RCIA. Okay, a couple more things. We did this last time. Okay. Jesus, right? Could have died, right? At the beginning of his life, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. They tick everybody off and they look a way to kill him. And Jesus avoids them. And one of the coolest things is that the Gospels tell us that Jesus up the Last Supper. So he sends his apostles to prepare for it. He says, go into the city. He sends two apostles, and they go into the city, and he says, look for a man carrying a jug of water. Now, most of the time we read this and we're like, it's kind of like my it's a Bible world, like whatever, water, you know, and then he, this is my friend Tim Gray. He usually says, he makes tacky jokes and he'll say, you know, meet the guy at 2nd and Camel Street. 
you know, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, you're such a nerd. But it's, but he says, tell him when you meet him, he gives him a password. He says, when you find this man, say, the master says, where is the upper room where I am to prepare the Passover and eat it with my disciples? And if you read this carefully, it's Jesus set up a secret location. He would who the person was. He would not tell them where the laptop was. He did it in secret. Now let me ask you this. Why? Why would Jesus do that? Because why? Okay. I don't think it's because of the crowd. I think that's a feasible answer. Okay, people, right? Okay, so you're in there. But he doesn't even tell the apostles. Why wouldn't Jesus tell the 12? Because one, because Judas is in the 12. And at the beginning of Holy Week, we're told that Judas is going to betray Jesus. And back in John chapter 6, which we're going to talk about tonight, John tells us, the very beginning, who it was that would be. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross until he had the Last Supper. He he didn't just choose like the the year of his life to die. He chose the very specific moment. It's going to be one of those emotional nights, sorry. This is like, you know, like when you're like, you marry guys, I don't know, you probably get emotional with you're like your wife. I don't know. This is kind of tough for me. So Jesus is waiting until, and it's very clear in the gospel, he will not go to the cross. It's the Last Supper. On 13.1, which is John's account of the Last Supper, Jesus says this, It says, now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come. Now is the time. Having loved his own who were in them to the end, and during supper, then it goes into the whole Last Supper, right? So Jesus knows. And uh, I think it's in Luke's version, he says, he turns to the apostles and he says, I have earnestly desired to celebrate this Passover with you before I suffer. Okay. One last thing, and then we'll see if you guys want to break or not. Okay. Let's look at your sheet. But just again, some more data points, okay? So the top of the one that just says that it was from 2018, that's because it was. Um, first quote from John chapter 6. Jesus goes off about how you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And he's, he talks about the manna from heaven. The whole chapter is the bread from heaven. Multiply loaves in the desert. And the, there's all this language that, ex, that 
is the manna. And Jews begin to say, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread that come, came down from heaven. I'm the manna. And the Jews are like, you're crazy. And they start to push back. And we're not, we don't have time tonight, but go home. Look up John 6. It's super powerful. Chapter is about the Eucharist. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you. In the Gospels, Jesus oftentimes says, Truly, truly, or and amen. When he does that, he's taking an oath. That's what he's doing. Truly, truly, or amen is an oath. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. People will tell you that Jesus never taught his flesh. I don't know how he could have fit any Here's the other beginning of John chapter 6. This is going to be key. The beginning of John 6, St. John tells us that this happens um, around the feast of Passover. And by John's, but we, we know from just studying scripture, this is one year before the Passover. Before so think about that really quick. Let's just pause there. Jesus spends an entire chapter goes off after his blood. And it's the feast of Passover. One year later, exactly, on the feast of Passover, and by and in John 6, Jesus had multiplied bread, and he says, I'm and my food and my blood. At the last night of his life before he dies, right, Jesus takes a piece of bread and says, This, take this all of you and eat it. This is my body. Right? Okay, pause. How many people want a break? All right, three minute break. Go. Folks, okay, we better start it up again. So, one of the things I've been trying to get to slowly is, right, the, the New Testament very clearly is trying to show us that the Last Supper was an unbelievably important moment. Um, the other one, and we brought this up last time, is... What night does Jesus have the Last Supper on? Thursday is true, and what feast is it? Everyone's whispering. What's the feast? Passover, right? So we got to talk about Passover. Passover is one of three very large Jewish feasts. There are actually, if you, if you read Leviticus 23, God gives seven feasts to the Jews. 
but there's three where all Jews are to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. And they're the, they're the big three. So Passover is one. Does anybody know the other two? Booths is one. And the third is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So those are the three big ones. So, and I, I mentioned this, but just, this, just to add emphasis, we're not at the core yet. I think you know that. But Josephus, who's a near contemporary of Christ, he's one of our most important historical sources for understanding, understanding Jesus' time frame and his context. Um, Josephus tells us that at the time of Passover in the first century, there were roughly one million pilgrims in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And not just Jews, they also had other Gentiles who were interested in Judaism, whatever. But about a million people. Now, he's probably off on that, but the point is, it's really crowded. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus and his disciples had to stay in a little town called Bethany. You'll, you'll, see, a lot, you'll see a lot of churches called Bethany. Ever seen that? This means yes. This means no. Now you'll notice. You're going to be like, oh, there's Bethany Church. Bethany is a little town, very t- been a village, just outside of Jerusalem. And the apostles and Jesus have to stay there because there's no room. Because Jerusalem's so overflowing. So my only point in building all of that up is that, and we said this last time, Jesus knew what he was doing. The Passover is a, it would be like, it would be like us being like, oh man, I forgot it's Christmas. No one forgets it's Christmas, right? Unless you're, I don't know, like really, really secular. Um, very intentional. So we got to understand Passover. So Passover Right? God in Exodus gives the 10 plagues. And if we had more time for this, I know those are weird. You're like, is God just like random? And he's angry and he's like, now I will show you. There will be locusts. Take that, Egyptians. <laughs> right? And it seems crazy to us because we don't know how to read the Bible. What the 10 plagues do is they cast judgment on the Egyptian gods. And every single one of the 10 plagues is a judgment on an Egyptian god showing the Egyptians that they are not gods. The easiest example to point out in that one is the Nile. The Egyptians worship the Nile as a god. And what, what, what happens to the Nile in the 10 plagues? It's turned to blood. If you're someone who worships the Nile and it turned to blood, how do you think you would interpret that? Yeah, yeah, Nietzsche, right? God is dead. That's awesome. Okay, that's a philosophical joke, but you, I'm such a nerd. The last of the 10 plagues is the death of the firstborn son. Or Passover. Now, what Egyptian god does that cast judgment on? That's right, it's Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh is considered a god. And the Exodus story makes it very, very clear that the Passover will strike the lowest all the way to the house of Pharaoh. 
And Moses, God through Moses, tells Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. And you have taken him from me. And if he says, if you don't repent, if you do not change, I will take your firstborn son from you. Okay, that's Passover. Okay, so Jews understand Passover to be the night of their redemption. If you want to read about this in the Bible, it's in Exodus chapter 12. Okay, so here we go. So in Exodus 12, Moses gives these instructions. He tells the Jews, I need to erase a little bit. Moses tells the Jews they are to kill a lamb. And let's just skip one. Kind of these parallels will combine two of them. But that lamb, he says, is to be, in Exodus 12, 5, he says that lamb is supposed to be without blemish. In other words, it's supposed to be perfect. Now, does anybody know? What is, what is, that's the Exodus. What's the parallel to that at the Last Supper? Jesus. Right? So at the Last Supper, Jesus is the Lamb. Right? At the beginnings of the Gospels, John the Baptist, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. The New Testament is emphatic that Jesus is the Lamb of God. At Mass, we say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? Um, okay, Jesus is the Lamb of God, without blemish. What would that mean for Jesus? He's free of sin. Exodus twelve six tells us you have to kill the Lamb in the evening. Now, it's a little weird for us. We don't think of it this way, but Jews do. For a Jewish person, the end of a day is sundown. Jesus mounts the cross at noon, and he dies at 3 o'clock on Good Friday. And we also know John's gospel makes this the most explicit, that Jesus is killed at the exact time the Passover lamb would be slaughtered. Okay, so then what you do is you, in, in Exodus 12, 7, Moses says, you take, the, you take the lamb, you take the blood of the lamb, you put it on the doorposts, right? So, blood on the door. What, what is the corresponding thing for us? This one's a little tougher, probably. That's what I'm asking you guys. What does it symbolize? So this one's a little harder, but basically, so when the, when, the, when the early Christians see this and they say you put the blood of the lamb on the door, they say two things. They see the cross, Jesus' blood on, on the cross as that new doorway, but they also just see it as you. When Jesus' blood falls on us, death passes over. Okay. 
right? So that's, that's where you get the word Passover. Passover is because God sends the angel of death into Egypt. The, and the Jews, what they're doing is they're making a public act of faith, by the way, right? Like if, if you've been an Egyptian and you've been getting like just destroyed by plagues, you, do you think like the, the Jews probably weren't really well liked by the Egyptians at that point? And the Jews have to make a public act of faith in God. They take the blood of the lamb, right, on the doorposts. Death passes over. Passover. The New Testament is like, that's our story. Jesus' blood, the true, the new lamb of God, when his, death, when his blood falls on you, death passes over. A couple more things. Uh, Exodus is clear that you cannot break a bone of the lamb. How is that fulfilled in the New Testament? Yeah, on the cross, in John's gospel, they make a big deal about this, right? Jesus has no broken bones after he's crucified. They're gonna, right, they're, they're, gonna, they're gonna break their legs because when you're on a cross, the way the crucifixion victims died is by what's called asphyxiation. And what happens is all this fluid builds up in your lungs and you actually die by suffocating. <laughs> why, am I, why am I a public speaker? Oh, I hate it. You, you, you die by, by suffocating on the liquid in your lungs. And the only way you prolong your death, and this is why, well, you know why Jesus has that little triangle under his foot and on crucifixes? Um, Whatever, you'll see it. He has like a little like pedestal that he, that's on the cross. And they did that. And the reason they did that was to make your death more painful on a cross. Because the way you survive and your, and your torturous death goes longer is you push up to breathe. Um, so hard to talk about this stuff. But the way, so the way you speed up a death is you make it so they can't push up to breathe. And so Pilate is worried and the Jews are worried about the big feast day. And they don't want, it's kind of like when you have a big party, you don't want the guys on the cross outside your party. So they go to Pilate and they say, this is obscene, can we get this out of here? And so he orders them to break their legs. But when they come to Jesus, he's already dead. And John tells us, I actually just pulled this out, but he tells us that was to fulfill the prophecy that not a leg shall be broken, and not a bone. But when they, this is John 19.33. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And then he goes on this weird kind of tangent, like, and we, we don't have time for that. But at the end it says, For these things took place, verse 36, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. Right, Jesus is the new Passover lamb. Right? And if you, if you go to a Seder meal, I tell people this every year, the center of a Seder meal is, is a lamb. Now they have a really symbolic, but in the, that's the centerpiece. 
Okay. Let's pause one second. Questions up to this point. And this is cool stuff. Yeah, Katie. And so the Jews, so they're going into Sabbath. It's Friday. And on Sabbath, you can't do anything, right? And that Sabbath, we're told, is a solemn feast day. It's part of the, the feast of um, unleavened bread. It's a little complex, but there's a lot of people around, and it's just really unpleasant on a Sabbath in Jerusalem to have a bunch of crucified victims of the Romans. So they, that's why they ask for it. Okay. So it's a symbol in the Old Testament in general. God wants sacrifices without blemish in general. It becomes a symbol for sinlessness. But before that, what it means is if, if you and I are ranchers and we're supposed to be devout Jews and we go to the temple and we're going to, we, and we've got, we both got a hundred lambs and um, we know which ones are the strongest and the healthiest, which ones aren't, which one are you going to be tempted to give and sacrifice that you don't get any money for and that you don't get to eat? The, the less impressive ones, right? You're going to be tempted to be like, to give God the one that's like, I'm not going to make any money off this anyways. And it's a symbol in the Old Testament that God is first in your life, right? That I don't give God my last and my leftovers, I give him my first. Okay. Sorry, I just want to make sure that I hit these in the right order here. Okay, so here we go. So in the, at the Last Supper, we, uh, where's my eraser again? There it is. We have five accounts. We talked about that last time. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11. And the center of a Passover feast is the lamb. Now in those five accounts of the Last Supper, how many times is a lamb mentioned? Seven's a good guess. I love it when you get it wrong. <laughs> when we learn about purgatory, you're going to find out why I'm going to be there a long time. <laughs> it's, it is, you're right, it's a trick question. It's, it's, it's never... Isn't that interesting? The, the, the absolute center of the Passover is the lamb. Moses in Exodus 12, the lamb is the absolute centerpiece of the whole story. And it's everything that meal is focused on. But in the Last Supper, there's no, no mention. There's no mention of a lamb. Now, why would that be? Because Jesus is the lamb. And what Jesus does all over the New Testament is he takes Old Testament stories and symbols and he makes them about him. 
right? So, so the temple, right, in John chapter 2, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. And they say, how are you going to do that? It took us 70 years to do this. But he spoke of the temple of his body, right? The temple is redefined around the person of Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, seven times, there's your seven, seven times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus quotes Moses in the Old Testament in the Pentateuch, and he says, you have heard, it was written of old, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. No one could say that as a Jew. Jesus is quoting the law of God. He's taking that and he's transforming it around him. He does this all over the New Testament. He does the same thing in the Last Supper. He takes the, the, one of the most central symbols of Israel, right? The symbol of redemption and of being brought into salvation, into the promised land, and he makes it about him. Okay, so there, there's never mentioned. Jesus, and uh, we got to hit two key things here. So Moses says this. He says, when you, when you celebrate this in Exodus, he says, you will do this as a memorial through all generations. This is absolutely critical. This is the heart of, of really understanding what Catholics believe. <clears throat> so he says, you will do this as a memorial. The Hebrew word there is zikaron. I don't know too many Hebrew words, but this is like a really important one, so I learned it. So Moses says, this is a memorial, right? How does, how does that fulfill at the Last Supper? You know all you Catholics who go to Mass on Sundays? Yeah, do this. Jesus says, do this. He takes the chalice. This is my chalice. The, this is the, my, the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. It will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. Old Testament's Hebrew. New Testament is Greek. Jesus says, do this in anemnesis of me. Understanding that word is unbelievably important. We're modern people, and we don't have sacramental and mystical imaginations. But ancient peoples did. That word means something different to them than it does to us. So grab your sheets. See if I can find the quote. going to be on the one page. So that one that says RCIA at the top, um, they both do. <laughs> the one that says January of 2018. The bottom of that front page, this is from what's called the Mishnah. The Mishnah is one of the absolutely authoritative uh, books for Jews. In every generation, a person is duty-bound 
to regard himself as if he personally has gone forth from Egypt. Since it is said, and you shall tell your son in that day, saying, it is because of that which the Lord did for me when I came forth out of Egypt. Therefore, we are duty-bound to thank, praise, glorify, honor, extol, exalt, extol, and bless him who did for our forefathers and for us all these miracles. The key to this is that for a Jewish person in Jesus' time, this word does not mean, hey, remember last year when, um, you know, you keyed my car? Or like, or the way we celebrate the 4th of July. Wow, let's remember our independence. That is not how ancient peoples understood this. If, and I, every year I make this challenge. I challenge you to go find an Orthodox Jew, not a secular Jew, an Orthodox, like Hasidic Jew. And go ask him what happens on Passover. Go ask him. Look for the curls. They are kind of hard to find. Go to New York. <laughs> go, yeah. Yeah, go to New York. Go to YouTube. Go to YouTube. But what, they, what they'll tell you is that when Jews celebrate Passover, they do not believe that they remember something that happened in the past. They don't believe that. They believe that they go through the exodus in Egypt. So memorial in an ancient context does not mean to remember something it means to make present the past. One more reference to that. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, the very beginning of that movie, there's the two Marys. Jesus is in Gethsemane. Um, Right, and he's, he's sweating blood, and the serpent is coming through. Um, and what happens is the, there's this scene that breaks. I think that it's after Jesus is arrested. But Mary Magdalene comes running, and she kind of bursts into this room where the other Mary is. And Mary, the mother of God, says to Mary Magdalene, I think it's that way, but one of them says to the other, why is this night different from every other night? Do you remember that? You don't teach a class on Eucharist, so you don't have to. Um, but they say that. Go watch this soon. And they say, why is tonight different from every other night? And the other one says, because we were slaves in Egypt, and God redeemed us. That line is a line from the Passover liturgy. So kind of like when you come to Mass, right, and like, I say the Lord be with you, and you say it also with your spirit. It's like that. It's a part of liturgy. And Mel Gibson quoted that very appropriately at the start of the Passion. Why is this night different from every other night? And she doesn't say, well, because we remember that way back when, 4,000 years ago, our forefathers were slaves. Why is tonight different from every other night? And every Jew says this as part of the Passover liturgy. Because we were slaves in Egypt. Okay, this is all over the Mishnah, by the way. It's really cool. Jews really believe they have to go through this. Okay, we're going to do some last, like, really cool things here. We're actually doing pretty well with time. Let's pause. One, maybe two questions.
You ready for this? Okay. So the Eucharist, and we, we're not, we obviously can't cover everything in this class because it's the center of everything. Okay. So, Jesus is at the Last Supper, and uh, well, let me just say it this way. Here's, here's what we're going to, I'm going to try to show you in our last 20 minutes. What the Catholic Church believes about the Eucharist and about the Mass, hold it together here, is that when you go to Mass, we believe this. When you go to Mass, we believe you are at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I did not know that until I was about 22. I, I didn't know that. But this is what we believe. And what I'll encourage you to do is if you get a catechism of the Catholic Church, most people don't because it's like 8,000 pages. But it's a great reference. And in the section on the Eucharist, it'll teach you this. That we believe that when you go to Mass, you are actually present at the crucifixion. Why do we think that? Okay, so here we go. So Jesus at the last, well, we, and here's what we think. We think that Jesus very clearly made the last supper and the crucifixion in some sense the same thing. Here's how he did it. So Jesus takes bread and this is so simple. We hear it so oftentimes we don't think about it very deeply. And I remember like, thinking about this years ago and I was like, how have I never put that together? But at the Last Supper, Jesus takes a piece of bread. He tells you that it is his body. And what does he do with that piece of bread? He breaks it. Right? He says, this is my body. And he breaks it. Now, now just very simply, when is the body of Jesus Christ broken? It's broken on the cross. And then the, even the stronger one is with the chalice. Right? And if you're a scripture person, oh, gosh, I could spend all night on this. I have. <laughs> Jesus says, this is the cup of the new covenant. If you want a great reference, if you're a Bible person, that's a reference to Exodus 24 verse 8, where Moses has the blood of the covenant at Mount Sinai. And what he does is he takes a bunch of blood and he sprinkles half of it on the altar and he sprinkles the other half on the people. And what it is, is a, it's a covenant ceremony. Scholars call that the covenant ratification ceremony because now the, the altar symbolizing God and the people share the same blood. And Moses calls that the blood of the covenant. At the Last Supper, Jesus says this, and that one is one of those rare things in scripture scholarship that almost no one disputes, that that's what that's a reference to. Anyway, this is the chalice or the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out. Now, two things here. One, when is, when is the blood of Jesus Christ poured out? And on the cross, right? Like on the cross, as he dies, his blood is poured 
out. The other thing that's important to notice there is that that language of pouring out, that is temple language. That's the language of a Jew when they go to make a sacrifice in the temple. There's this thing in the temple called a drink offering. Or another word for that is libation. That's the language Jesus uses at the Last Supper. So at the Last Supper, Jesus calls the bread and the wine, the new sacrifice of the new covenant, which is him. So cool. Okay, it's about to get better. (laughs) This is like my favorite thing. So in, in the Jewish liturgy, Right? And like, if you came to Mass, and Catholics, you know this. If you're already Catholic, you know this. If a priest misses something at Mass, you don't, you don't miss something at Mass. Like, it's not yours. I can't be like, ah, oh, you know, this week I just think we'll skip the Lamb of God. Right? If I skip the Lamb of God, you would be all too nice to not to tell me that I missed it. But you'd be like judging me in your heart. Because you know I'm supposed to do that. It's not mine. I don't get to just make up the liturgy. It belongs to God. Same thing with Jews. You don't skip things. The Jews have, I don't know why I numbered it that way. The Jews have four cups at the Last Supper, at the Passover liturgy. So when you go through the Passover, you have to drink four cups. So last time I made this reference in 1 Corinthians 10, St. Paul makes a reference to this. First Corinthians 10, 16, Paul says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Well, guess what? The cup of blessing is not just like this, hey, let's have a blessing cup. Come over for dinner. I'll bless you. The cup of blessing is the third cup of the Passover meal. So it's actually part of the Jewish liturgy. And here's the crazy thing. So at the Last Supper, I, I love this. At the Last Supper, Jesus, uh, he drinks that cup and then he does the weirdest thing for a Jewish person. Right after he drinks of the cup, Judas, Judas is gone. Right after he partakes of the Eucharist, which really bad priests will make jokes about. That's why you should never leave Mass early is you're just like Judas. You, you, you eat the Eucharist and you take off. Before you know it, you're back to kill somebody. Um, but you shouldn't leave mass early. That is true. Okay. Anyway, so the third cup, and then Jesus says, I'm, he says, I amen, amen, I say to you, I will not, and this is key. Hang with me. This is so cool. Jesus says, amen, amen, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And the gospels record that. Like, why is that such a big deal? They record those words. Amen, amen, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, right? That's wine, until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He hasn't drunk the last cup. It's a big deal. Right? In, in Judaism, like, you, you follow the rules. You drink the last cup. Jesus is like, I'm not drinking it. 
Where does Jesus go right after the Last Supper? Garden of Gethsemane. And what what does Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? Three times, Jesus says, Father, if it is possible, take this cup. The last thing he says at the Last Supper is, I'm not going to drink again. And then he goes, he goes to Gethsemane, and all of a sudden, there's a, there it is again. There's a chalice. Right? But not as I will, but as you will. So cool when you see this. Okay. When's the next time Jesus drinks? On the cross. What does he drink? Yeah, vinegar or spoiled wine. So he's, and what does he say just before that? He says, I thirst. Right? I thirst. And so, here, and one c- cool thing, I don't usually do this, but we have a little bit of time, is that Jesus said, I won't drink of the, of the cup until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Well, in the Gospels, the moment the kingdom of God comes is the crucifixion. Why? Because the kingdom is the place where God is made king. And on the cross, leading up to the cross, right, Jesus is crowned with thorns. The Romans, right, they, they strip him of all his garments and they put him in a purple cloak. Purple is the color of royalty in the ancient world. They give him a scepter and they bow down and they mock him. And then Pilate in John 18 has this long dialogue with Jesus about whether or not he is a king. It's very interesting when you read it this way. When you understand what's happening and the irony, it's so powerful. But there's, there's this dialogue between the earthly power and the heavenly power that is willing to be crucified. And there's this big dialogue about what is, what is power, what is truth. What is kingship? Very important questions for, for Christians to ask. And then Pilate crucifies him. And what does the, the title above Jesus say? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Right? John 12, 24, I think it is. Uh, no, that's the wrong one. But in John 12, Jesus says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then that's an image of a king being enthroned. Jesus' enthronement was his crucifixion. So on the cross, so Jesus said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God comes. So I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The moment the kingdom of God comes in the gospels, brothers and sisters, is not the moment you sail to heaven on a cloud. It's the moment Jesus was crucified. And that's the moment he won the whole world over. Yeah, Ben. Very good. I th- it's because, so in the, in the Old Testament, there's the cup of God's wrath. And most, not everybody, but most people would say it's really a reference to this, that God, God does hate sin. He hates sin because it destroys us. Right? You'll hate, you will hate things that hurt your children. You will, if you don't have them already. 
So God hates sin and it causes wrath, but Jesus, right? Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath to the dregs. And I don't want to get too deep into soteriology because that brings up thorny issues. But um, here's the last thing. So the coolest thing here, so Jesus drinks of the, of the, the spoiled wine, the vinegar, right? He drinks of it. And then he says what? It is finished. Tetelestai. It is finished. Um, well, what's finished? Some scholars say the Last Supper. Um, one more, and here's why. Here's the, the coolest thing of all of this, I think. <clears throat> Is it that fourth cup? It's called the cup of consummation. And the way, you, the, the way you would translate that into Greek, and in fact, the way it is translated into Greek, is tetelestai. Oops, I wrote it half English, half Greek. That's helpful. Tetelestai. Tetelestai is, it is finished. When, when St. Jerome in the fourth century, when he translates tetelestai from the Greek into Latin, the way he translates that is consumantum est. So the fourth cup is a cup of consummation. <laughs> Which is the cross. Yeah. Yep. I, I know I always forget their names. I'm sure there are. I have to look it up. They're not as explicit in the New Testament. So the New Testament doesn't focus in on these two. It focuses on the last two. And that's why I probably don't have the names memorized. There's a really great video on forum.org about this. Thank you. I knew you would say that. If you don't, get out of my class. Yeah, get on form.org. This is Scott Hahn. Yeah. Yeah, so th that's a great place to review this. If you don't know about that, I, I always forget to bring the password. It's free through the parish. But if you get a bulletin at church that has the password, you can get on there. It's free. Okay, can I finish with one, one last thing? We're going to talk about this a little bit more next week. Um, gosh, it's... Uh, it's hard to pick what I want to say at the end here. Um, what is this about? And this is really what we're going to talk. Next week we're going to talk about like when you go to mass and how, what does it mean for us to go to mass. If you go to mass and you understand this, it will change everything for you for the rest of your life. I used to be one of those Catholics that I was like, "Why is mass so boring?" But then I became a priest so I could bore you, right? But no, I was like, it was so boring. And I was like, why do we always do the same thing? Why is it always the same? Can we like change it up? Like, can we like, like, I don't know, show like a video or something or I don't, I don't know. Can we, or can we go outside in a mountain and like play guitar and like hang out and tell stories? Um, why does it always have to be the exact same thing? And here's why. Worship is not about you. 
Worship is not about you. Worship is not about you. Worship is not about you. And modern Christians, so frequently, our criterion for a good worship service is me. How did I feel? How do I want to worship God? What the, what the church teaches is that the true worship of God was what happened on the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the true worship, right? That's it. That's why Jesus gave us the Eucharist. And so that what happens and what's supposed to happen in the Eucharist, and again, we'll talk about this more next week, what's supposed to happen in the Eucharist, brothers and sisters, is not you're watching me do something. What happens is you're a baptized Christian, and as a baptized Christian, you are, you are part of the body of Christ. What does the body of Christ do? It offers itself to God the Father in perfect love. And when I got that, when I was a sophomore in college, it changed my life forever. And like, I still wanted good homilies at Mass. I still wanted good music. Still do today. But I do not go to Mass for a homily. I do not go to Mass for music. I do not go to Mass to see friends. I go to Mass to worship God. And if the homily's terrible and the church is ugly and the music sucks, but the Eucharist is there, then I have everything. And so the, the, what that's meant to do is that Jesus is one sacrifice for all on the cross that he offered to the Father, right? That you and I, it only happens once. That's one thing some people get wrong. They think that it happens again. It's only once, but it's made present to every age of history. And what was, happens at Mass is that you and I are drawn up into that. Okay, can we look at just a couple quotes? We've got, we're still under time, believe it or not. By just about a half hour. Come on, it's kind of funny. Now here's the other thing. I think one temptation about this would be to be like, wow, that was pretty cool. Might just be Father Brian. Like, maybe he came up with this, you know. We don't know what priests do. Maybe he sat at home all day and just dreamt all this up. These aren't going to be the same as everything we talked about tonight, but I just want to show you the earliest Christians. These are on, on this sheet. It's the stapled one. I didn't put all of them, but I put a sample of different quotes from the earliest Christians that are not in the Bible. Right? People will say, well, we, I don't think the Bible means that. And, I'm, and what I say to them is I'm like, well, I think it does. And I think the Bible actually very sufficiently explains it. And we're going to probably do Luke 24 next week. But even outside of that, you might not think that, but all the early Christians did. And 2,000 years of church history says this is what it means. And it's been central for 2,000 years from the very beginning. So the Didache is, it's a, Didache is a Greek word that means teaching. It's written, we don't know for sure, but somewhere between 50 and 100. About the same time as the New Testament. Let no one eat and drink of your Eucharist but those baptized in the name of the Lord. To this too, the saying of the Lord is applicable. Do not give to dogs what is sacred. That sounds strong to us, right? Um, the teaching of the Catholic Church today is you cannot receive the Eucharist if you are not a baptized Catholic. A lot of people think that's harsh today. The Didache taught that in the first century. 
So from the Didache, on the Lord's own day, right? Sunday, assemble in common to break bread and offer thanks. You know what? What's the Greek word to offer thanks? Eucharist. Eucharist means to offer, to give thanks. Assemble in common to break bread and offer thanks, but first confess your sins so that your sacrifice may be pure. Notice how the breaking of the bread is regarded as a sacrifice. Ignatius of Antioch. He's talking about those that are kind of outside the church. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his graciousness raised from the dead. Ignatius of Antioch is the one who was personally mentored by St. John the Apostle. Come together in common, one and all, without exception, in charity, in one faith, and in one Jesus Christ, who is of the race of David according to the flesh, the Son of Man and the Son of God, so that with undivided mind you may obey the bishop and the priests and break one bread, which is the medicine of immortality and the antidote against death. Wow. Enabling us to live forever in Jesus Christ. Make certain, therefore, that you all observe one common Eucharist, For there is one body of our Lord Jesus Christ and but one cup of union with his blood and one single altar of sacrifice. Even as also there is but one bishop with his clergy and my fellow servitors, that's an interesting word, the deacons. This will ensure that all your doings are in full accord with the will of God. There is no pleasure for me in any meats that perish or in the delights of this life. I am fain for the bread of God, even the flesh of Jesus Christ, who is the seed of David, And for my drink, I crave that blood of his, which is love imperishable. I know this is going a little long, but if somebody has to leave, feel free to go, but I want to just work through these. This food, St. Justin Martyr. So Justin Martyr, this is written about 155. This food we call the Eucharist, of which no one is allowed to partake except one who believes that the things we teach are true and has received the washing of forgiveness for forgiveness of sins and for rebirth. What is that? baptism, and who lives as Christ handed down to us. For we do not receive these things as common bread or common drink, but as Jesus Christ, our Savior, being incarnate by God's word, took flesh and blood for our salvation, so also we have been taught that the food consecrated by the word of prayer which comes from him and from which our flesh and blood are nourished by transformation is the flesh and blood of that incarnate Jesus. God has offered, therefore, God has therefore announced in advance that all the sacrifices offered in his name, which Jesus Christ offered, that is the Eucharist of bread and of the chalice, which are offered by us Christians in every part of the world, are pleasing to him. Christ has declared the cup a part of creation to be his own blood, from which he causes our blood to flow. And the bread, a part of creation, he has established as his own body, from which he gives increase to our bodies. St. Cyprian, so the sacred meaning of the Pasch, that's the word for the Passover, lies essentially in the fact laid down in Exodus. See, I'm not making this up. That the lamb slain as a type of Christ should be eaten in one single home. That's one of the, I don't usually do this, the church fathers say this. I don't do this in the parallels. But Moses says you can only eat the lamb in one house. And the church fathers say that's because there was to be one church of Jesus Christ.
Yep. It has to be, yeah, when do we forget this? It has to be renewed in every age. But honestly, and this is for another class, when we get to morality, we'll talk about this, but I would call the time when we started to forget the 60s. <laughs> and I really mean that, and we'll talk about why. We'll talk about why that happened. Um, God says in words, and when house shall it be eaten, ye shall not cast its flesh outside, the flesh of Christ and the Lord's sacred body cannot be cast outside, nor have believers any home but the one church. St. Ephraim, after the disciples had eaten the new and holy bread, and when they understood by faith that they had eaten of Christ's body, they went on to explain and to give them the whole sacrament. He took up, took and mixed a cup of wine, then he blessed it and signed it and made it holy, declaring that it was his own blood which was about to be poured out. Christ commanded them to drink, and he explained to them that the cup which they were drinking was his own blood. This is truly my blood, which is shed for all of you. Take all of you drink of this, because it is a new covenant in my blood. As you have seen me do, do also in, mem in my memory. Whenever you are gathered together in my name in churches everywhere, do what I have done in memory of me, eat my body, and drink my blood, a covenant new and old." St. Augustine, it was as though I were in a land where all is different from your own. And I heard your voice calling from on high saying, I am the food of full-grown men. Grow and you shall feed on me. But you shall not change me into your own substance as you do with the food of your body. Instead, you shall be changed into me. Very contrite, or, um, concisely, Theodore of Mopsuestia, that's a great name for your next child, the Lord did not say, this is a symbol of my body and this is a symbol of my blood, but this is my body and my blood. Okay. Um, next time, I, take this home and here's your homework for next time. That next page is again, St. Justin Martyr in the year 155. And I want you to read it on your own because I wish it to end. But what, it, what that is, is there is a pagan he's dialoguing with and he asked him what do Christians do on Sundays because I'm hearing rumors that Christians are cannibals so I want to know what it is you Christians do on Sundays so St. Justin Martyr wrote back what's on your sheet and I want you to look at that and think about what Catholics do at Sunday Mass it will blow your freaking mind all right. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Jesus, that you decided to give us your flesh as our food on the way. Lord, I pray for all my brothers and sisters here tonight. I pray that both they and me, Lord, that we would, would help us to know the Eucharist, to know that you truly are there, that you truly desire to live inside of us, that you desire us to be present at the moment you redeem the world. Bless us as we go forth tonight. Jesus, may we love you more. May we surrender our lives to you. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.